You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Hans. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm well. I understand that we are about 16 hour difference. You're based in San Francisco and I'm based in Singapore. We are talking to Hans Tong, managing partner of GGV Capital. He's also on the Forbes Midas list 69 and well known as a venture capitalist in China with Qiming Ventures formerly and also an early investor to Xiaomi. Correct? That's correct. Yes. So Hans, I guess you have a very interesting career being a venture capitalist. I know you started off from Bessemer and then you moved to Qiming Ventures in China and then to GGV. How did you get started and what attracted you into going into this industry? I was a banker before. I did my undergrad at Stanford and then started my career at Merrill Lynch Investment Banking in New York and Hong Kong. Then I did the growth capital in Taiwan and actually Singapore. I lived in Singapore for almost four years. And then I joined a startup because that was the first wave of internet in the late 1990s and did that for uh, three years, sold the startups that we were part of and then decided that after having done banking, after having done growth capital, after having done startup, I felt I have the right experience to focus on venture capital because Mary's early stage investing, working with smart entrepreneurs, the betting on huge big trends that could grow big companies. And then you basically focus it a lot on the technology industry, right? That's exactly right. I picked the internet because my experience as an entrepreneur taught me that you can invest in traditional industries, but they grow more slowly, more in line with the macroeconomic growth. But if you focus on internet, that's potentially disruptive. You can have very outsized return and growth in a way that's not possible before. Because not only does it replace offline, it also adds a new dimension new way of doing things that I've never done before. After that, you also went to business school in MIT Sloan, right? I went to MIT and then from MIT, I went to join a Bessemer in Menlo Park, which mm-hmm. was uh, 20, 2005, early 2005. And when I joined Bessemer, the idea was always, I will start in the Menlo Park US office first, but I want to build my career in China as a venture capitalist. Because I felt that back then, there were early signs that the Chinese internet space will be very big. So after one year in Menlo Park, we went to uh, China, uh, start off in Shanghai. And when I went to China in 2005, that's when Baidu went public as a company and the market cap was about $5 billion US. And that was the year when Yahoo, Jerry Yan, that investment into Alibaba and combined Yahoo China into Alibaba, valuation of Alibaba back then was also $5 billion. And back, I remember back in 2005, everyone thought, those two valuations are crazy. Almost 10 years later, you look at the valuation. One is $80, $90 billion market cap for Baidu. Another one, obviously, for Alibaba is a $230 billion or, or higher kind of market cap. That's just astounding. One is 60x, another one is uh, about 20x. And that kind of return just not possible unless you're in a market that's new, China, with internet that's disruptive to create that kind of market valuation. Over the same time, Google only grew... 3x from uh, 100 billion 
to roughly 300 billion. When you were in Bessemer, that's the beginning of the Web 2.0, and then you go to China in Qiming Ventures. How does the landscape look like in China at that point when you first started? I mean, given the backdrop of Alibaba and Baidu at that point in time, what what are you looking at? Are there, I mean, given venture capital tend to be very localized, how do you see the differences? When you move from one place to the other, that's a very good question. When I went to China in 2005, moved to China, moved my family to China. I've only been to China maybe 10 times prior to that. The first time I went to China was uh, 1995. So between 1995 and 2005, over a 10-year period, I used to go to China almost、uh, pretty much once a year. And you can tell that China was changing very fast. Having been in the U.S. for several years, it's interesting to see how Web 2.0 is starting to take off in the U.S. But there were a lot of people still skeptical about it because many people got burned from the when the first bubble bursted in the early 2000s. So people were cautious. But in China, this、uh, internet was was just taking off. I remember in 2005, the internet user base in China was less than 100 million users. Now it is 700 million. So over a 10-year period, the population size of internet users in China just grew dramatically. And did I have the vision they would grow this fast? No, I didn't. But do I think that's the right direction? Yes, I did. I felt that that was the right thing to do. But as a someone who come from U.S. or outside of China, my angle back then was I've seen best practices elsewhere. Let me share that with the teams in China and help China team to find a localized way to do it. A lot of VCs back then in 2005 and entrepreneurs from the U.S. didn't realize that in China you need to do a lot of local adaptations and that ability to change to fit what's needed locally. Is what differentiated myself and also GGB and others that have done well since from just copying what's in the U.S.、Mm. So in your current role in GGB, as I understand, GGB Capital actually invests both in China and in the U.S. How does a venture firm like that transverse between two different geographies? And I think that has the internet gap between both U.S. and China. It becomes closer now, given that we have almost 500 million of internet users, and I think is China is also a mobile nation now. On yeah, on Ch- China has about 500 million、uh, smartphones now and、mm. 600 million PC internet users. That's right, adding up together, roughly close to 700 million. The so-called gap between U.S. and China is definitely narrowing. In some areas, China is ahead of the U.S. When I look at activities in the U.S. Most internet startups, for lack of at the risk of simplification, oversimplification, a lot of startups in the U.S. leverage advertising as a way to monetize.、Mm. So they have a lot of traffic worldwide, but they're mostly leveraging from advertising dollars in the U.S. and Western Europe. It is something that people are used to and feel comfortable dealing with it. You hire a sales team, manage your 1,000 accounts, and you can do very well. What people startups in the U.S. haven't spent as much time on is. Turn a, a heavy traffic website into a transaction engine to allow users to shop, to buy stuff, whether virtual items or physical goods or services. Those websites or apps. The ones that have done well with that, because Amazon is like Uber and and Airbnb, and the valuation is huge.、Mm-hmm. Um, what people in China realized back in two thousand five is that there is not that much advertising dollars in China or outside of the U.S. in general. So as such, you need to figure out a way to get users who want to pay you money. For services, whether it's for entertainment, which make QQ possible, or the users are going to pay money for purchasing goods, which made Alibaba very popular, and you have to make the transaction as frictionless as possible. So both of them don't charge users for usage, but instead make money from other folks. Premium model. Most of the services are free, but it's a few premium services that users have to pay 
or merchants have to pay, get more orders. And that very different mentality allowed Baidu, Tencent, Ali, and later Qihu, Yoku, Tudou, Xiaomi, all do very well. And that's a very important difference between U.S. and China in the internet space. And in our opinion, as the world goes from 3 billion internet users today, mostly on mobile, to the next 1 billion, to 4 billion, 5 billion, most of the emerging markets will have these models, more similar to China, with their own local adaptations as well, that more similar to China that try to foster building up of transaction engines. Mm. So you see other growth markets in Asia, would you see something like a India or a Southeast Asia kind of growth? Where it would happen that's similar to China? I think India, you're seeing a lot of growth very fast. Mm. Whether it's Flipkart or Snap deal. And although GGV is not an investor of both, I'm a personal investor of both companies. Wow. And very small uh, personal investor in both companies. But I really like how the, the Indian entrepreneurs are really looking at China, not just the U.S., for ideas and then come up with their own local adaptations for environment in India. India has roughly 200 million internet users. Most of them are on PC. Most of them are on dial-up. And there's very little you can do on a dial-up connection. But the fastest-growing internet segment in India is smartphone, obviously. And smartphone is it will make it much easier for people to enjoy 3G services and do more things over the internet. So I think India's next five years will be much better than the past five years. Because past five years has been hard to get users who want to spend a lot of time doing meaningful things over dial-up internet access. So you're currently with GGV. So it's a very, very interesting uh, venture capital firm. It has a very strong portfolio with it. There is Alibaba. There is uh, Kingsoft, which is well known for Candy Crush. And you also do House, which is one of the most recent uh, internet companies. So overall, what do you see in the US side of GGV? Do, are you also looking into interesting companies? What was your actually investment thesis, if I may ask? Openly? Sure. We are interested in companies that are in the internet space, specifically mobile, that can go global. By mm-hmm. global, we mean in the US, China, Southeast Asia, and uh, uh, Europe. And we think that companies that can go global, and I should, I should include Brazil as well, uh, companies that can go global, have a chance to build much bigger business in a much shorter period of time. When I first invested in Xiaomi in 2010, the company just had three founders and a very crazy idea. And back then, it's hard to predict, but that Xiaomi could be as big as it is now, valuing at $45 billion and $10 billion in net sales and over a billion dollars in net income, roughly. If you look at Alibaba, GG invested in Alibaba back in 2003, valuation was, was less than $200 million. Yeah. And now it's uh, 20 to 30 billion, a thousand X in uh, 10 plus years. It is impressive. You, you can bet on a company that go global, that the variation and the growth would take care of itself. But it requires a lot of the team to have the mix, the DNA that can allow them to go global. And the second thing that we're looking for is teams that understands transactions, understand how to get users to want to get users to spend money um, to buy virtual items or buy goods or buy services. And now these days more via mobile than ever. Companies that can be transaction platforms and engines ultimately can build huge businesses, much bigger than an advertising-driven kind of company. Even Facebook and Twitter are thinking about how to add transactions to their, to their website for the same reason. Personally, I spend time on companies that are focused on mobile internet, focus on cross-border uh, or commerce in general 
focus on do, engaging in uh, providing on-demand mobile services to users and also Internet of Things that combines hardware, software, and apps. For Internet of Things, I'm, I'm an investor in Misfit. Mm-hmm. And because of my relationship with Xiaomi and knowledge of, of JD, uh, my partner, Jenny Lee, and I brought Xiaomi and Jingdong into co-investing in Misfit to help Misfit become a global company. I was a, a early investor, a Series B investor in a company called Wish. They have three of the top 10 most popular lifestyle shopping app on mobile on Android. They have Wish, uh, Geek, and Mama, which is a great popular uh, mobile app for people who want to buy apparel. Geek is for people who want to buy 3C electronics. And Mama, obviously, is for people who want to buy Mama baby goods. Most of the suppliers are outside of the U.S. China is a big prominent uh, portion that they curate and, and, and select the best suppliers to service users worldwide. And a lot of users who want to have more selection at very competitive, very cheap prices are attracted to the app. Retail, physical retail is interesting, but it's limited in how deep you can penetrate. With a mobile shopping app, you can buy anything in the world, like which has over 30 million SKUs. An average Walmart store, as big as Walmart is, has only 200,000 SKUs in a store. So 200,000 versus 30 million, you can find anything on Wish. Hmm. It's almost leveraging on the long tail effect because the niche is where most of the new transactions are being made in That's this correct. kind of cross-border e-commerce capability. That's it, 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 with the physical retail, there's always limitation. You can only stock the most popular items. So the long tail, there's a lot more stuff that one uh, consumer could want at very competitive prices that you, you can only find on an online platform. And this is why I wish reminds me a lot of uh, Xiaomi's growth in terms of trajectory. And Misfit was more focused on wearables, right? As you mentioned earlier as well. Right. We, so, we, love, the, we mm. love the team at Misfit, very smart, PhD from MIT and, and just overall very intelligent team, very thoughtful. They have done stuff in healthcare before and now doing stuff on wearable. We think that the more beautiful product they can make, physical product they can make and get to the hands of uh, users over time as they build up a huge base, they can do very interesting data analytics on top of that and provide very value-added services that users will pay for later. Hmm. And then you also have one more company on your portfolio called Curse. I think it's kind of linked to your thesis about making transactions as well as a gaming platform that focuses a lot on communication and transactions. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. My partner, Jenny Lee, was a board member of YY. I, I know YY from for a yes. long time as well. And we think that the YY model, to some extent the Tencent model as well, could be popular outside of China. This is where our China-US dual focus, both sides, give us an advantage uh-huh. to look at what are the interesting models in one market that could be localized for other markets. And we felt that Hubert at um, Curse is very thoughtful, understand how YY and Tencent have grown in China and add a lot of their own innovations in their on their platform to come up with Curse Voice to allow online gaming users to talk to each other, coordinate things, coordinate activities, and as such build a community based on voice. And then uh, down the road, engage in other interesting activities with those users and be able to monetize, get users to pay for things. Wow. So it's actually taking the something from China and bringing it to the rest of the world, basically. Correct. It's the idea from China, mm-hmm. but they also did a lot of adaptations, you know, innovations on their own for markets in, the, in, the, in Europe and Southeast Asia and Latin America and U.S. 
because you, no matter no matter how great an idea is, one country, the effort in terms of changing it, adapting it for your own markets is, I think, just as important. I sort of want to sort of talk to you a little bit more about Xiaomi, given that you are a very early investor. I think you are also on the board in the early stage when they first started, right? What are your yeah? Refle- I was on the board for three years. Yes. So, what are your reflections on Lei Jun and his? I, I think they call it the Avengers team. I mean, they have about six, seven people who are part of the founding team. How, how, how do you see them evolve from that early stage to now? I think Lei Jing was a very successful angel investor from 2007 to 2010. Before that, he had been with Kingsoft for almost 20 years. At Kingsoft, it was not easy for him to turn a software company to, into an internet company to a gaming company to leverage gaming to eventually go public. Uh, it started off as more of a software, like Microsoft-like company to uh, end up as a gaming company at IPO. It was not easy to change culture, change option pool, do a lot of work to try to get company to change. As after three years doing angel investment, I think he realized that the best way to build big companies is actually to capture the right trend for him on Xiaomi is mobile. Do things that other people won't do because it's not their core business. That's why you start with hardware rather than apps or software uh, with Xiaomi. On top of that, try to recruit the best team possible. So he was very generous with giving out options and equity to get the best team to join him. And because he's already a, an interesting figure in China, a known figure in Chinese internet space, and he already was popular on the Chinese Twitter, which is Weibo, Popsina, and Tencent, he was able to recruit an all-star team to join him to do this. And over time, he, as the Xiaomi grew, his angel investor background allowed him to think of Xiaomi ecosystem as a way to seed, incubate, fund a lot of teams to help them to build up their own uh, product portfolio, their own accessories and services so that you have an ecosystem building around Xiaomi that can sell a lot of stuff that will take a, a long time for one team to figure out. But when you can fund and, and see 30 companies to work with you, you can grow very quickly together. Mm. In fact, the e-commerce model, which Xiaomi kind of pioneered, the kind of flash sales model came from one of those companies that he has invested in e-commerce, right? He's able to basically map that into that Xiaomi ecosystem. Early on, he started seeing that uh, his investment banco uh, building a brand, it made, made sense for apparel. He also saw how VIP shop grew, and that's all uh, mostly flash sale. Mm-hmm. So when you marry the two together, it made sense for foam to be like that as well. And I think fundamentally, he realized that more, more important than the model, if you listen to the customer, incorporate their feedback into your product. And remember, before Xiaomi launched the first hardware, they've been doing the MIUI operating system upgrades for a long time. They did that for 18 months taking an Android kernel, do a, their own wraparound to make a service more usable for Chinese users. They did that for 18 months, and they have a weekly update. So by doing that, it made it, e- it, made it easy for users to feel that Xiaomi is a company that really listen and try to incorporate user feedback into their product very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that spirit made any business model they try much more likely to succeed. You have seen them in the early days, and I think that now they have the global ambitions to grow big. In terms of the original vision from Lei Jun and his team, has that has it been changed, or ha- has it grown exactly what they have envisioned earlier to be kind of a software, hardware integrated company, but also with a, as a brand as well? 
I think as a brand and also mm. have hardware, software, service integrated together one platform. Mm. Those were ideas that Beijing had from day one. Mm. I think he himself and his team, core team, uh, would say that <laughs> the company has grown much faster than any of them expect. And it, it's the fastest growing company in the history of venture back companies. Growth is just phenomenal from uh, selling uh, 7 million phones in 2012 and then uh, 20 million plus phones in 2013 and then 2014 last year over 60 million phones. That kind of growth and that kind of revenue growth just was unheard of. Mm. In fact, I think the first day when they tried to sell it in Singapore, at first, I mean, is, everybody was curious whether it would work, but immediately, right. I think within two minutes, it was sold out. That's right. Yeah. I think users want a device that's very competitively priced, very high quality spec, uh, and at the same time, you know, quick with customer service and updates. Marrying the three together create a very strong word of mouth effect that goes beyond uh, the Chinese borders. Mm. Um, I, I too wasn't sure it would do well beyond China initially, just because uh, it is is a China brand, and would the users be okay with that? But I think uh, the results and the quality of the goods speak for themselves. I have a question that uh, it always pops into my mind. I discussed with a couple of people is regarding Xiaomi's business model. I mean, I don't think it's actually cloning one or two companies. I think it's a mixture of them. It has a certain elements of a consumer electronics company. It has a certain elements of software and services that it, that allows transactions. In your view, what is their business model actually? For um, I think that the ultimate business model is if if you come out with a product that has as high quality, what mm. is the what is software or, or hardware, and you engage users actively, actively seek their feedback and suggestions. Mm. And upgrades very quickly to respond to their to their needs and requests. The chance of you building a, a huge platform is big. Mm. So the hardware is is something that you know is profitable on its own, but the margin is not very high. Beijing has said historically it's about fifteen percent gross margin. So if you can get the hardware out um, and make it as, as low price as possible, because you cut out sales costs, you cut out distribution middleman costs, you cut out marketing costs and pass all the saving onto the end user, the end user will tell their friends about about you. So that's why you're gonna have a very competitive price hardware. And then from that, people will buy accessories, which is much higher margin around that. And as you have more phones, you have more reach on the top of the hardware platform, you can introduce additional software and internet services and get a cut accordingly. So that model is, like you said, is a mixture of Amazon selling online a mixture of Apple because you have hardware and software, and a mixture of uh, uh, Tencent because you have the uh, people willing to pay, user willing to pay for games and download other apps on top of that, and they get a cut with a share with the developer, and a mixture of Alibaba building an e-commerce platform, so and in an ecosystem. So I think Beijing is very good at figuring out uh, what are what make what can build great companies and combine the elements from these different different companies, and on top of that. There's something that none of them did as well, which is you know constant rapid upgrades based on user feedback. No hardware company has ever done that before. Uh, what is Apple or Samsung or Motorola or Nokia? Uh, no one has done that. Yes, and I, the, and I think this rapid iteration of their operating system is still weekly as yeah. well. 
Yeah, yes. which is very impressive. I remember when I first, in fact, my first touch with the Xiaomi phone was the Mi 2. And we were just using it to test for an application in China. And I was yeah. very impressed by the uh, UI at an instant in time. So yeah. I... Well, having said that, though, I think there's a lot of uh, room for growth, for improvements for mm -hmm. Xiaomi, especially on the global front. I think having uh, Hugo join a company and work with the team to on international efforts is extremely important. Uh, it's, it's important to have someone who has credibility in the Android community at the same time, uh, international perspective and outlook to help the Xiaomi to come up with more services that's more suitable for different markets around the world. Mm. So how did you get Hugo to, from Google to join Xiaomi? I know you are some behind the scenes who got them to hire Hugo. So can you tell us the backstory then? I think I'm one of the a team member that did a good job of recruiting uh, Hugo. Hugo and I had a mutual friend uh, named Robin that spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time with Hugo before and know each other for a long time. And I got Robin to become a, a investor into Xiaomi as well. And LinkedIn is someone that Hugo also know, uh, started with Hugo and then later as a president of Xiaomi. So there were a lot of common friends, uh, common interests. We're trying to figure out what makes sense for everyone. And I think Hugo made the right decision after talking to LinkedIn and Beijing and, and check with Robin and meeting with the rest of the Xiaomi folks like me or even uh, Yuri from uh, DST, who by then was an investor in Xiaomi already. Just Hugo did his CV very thoughtfully, met with many people in Xiaomi and decided that this made sense for him. And the whole process takes at least a year, right? Uh, all in all, for a year. I think uh, Hugo was very happy at Android and it was, it was doing well. So for him to leave Android, leave Google, I think has been something that's really big. But ideally, you still have synergy with Google and Android. And mm. Xiaomi uh, allows that. And he's now kind of a celebrity, even moving moving from China down to Southeast Asia as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there was it's not every day you see a you know, Brazil-born, MIT-trained, uh, MIT-educated, Google-trained star joining a Chinese company. So it is a very interesting story in itself. Mm. So where do you see Xiaomi going in the next few years? Several fronts. I think Xiaomi was, is not just a phone company. Mm. Within the hardware itself, is moving into... Uh, home appliances with TV and uh, smart router into the Xiaomi ecosystem, air purifier and other uh, appliances. I think um, geographically, it's not just a China Chinese company, it's becoming a, a regional, if not a global company. Over the next two, three years, you will see growth on those two fronts. But uh, at the same time, the, uh, the original phone market is becoming increasingly competitive, which Xiaomi need to make sure it continue to do a good job as well. So getting deeper with phones uh, while getting broader in both geographically and from a product portfolio standpoint makes sense. And Xiaomi cannot do it alone. That's why Xiaomi invests, they uh, incubate a lot of companies, Xiaomi ecosystem, do it together and share the traffic, users, wealth of the um, Xiaomi platform with all the other startups as well. So you, everybody can grow together. Mm. So you can see them doing a lot more uh, consumer electronics, but more, I, I it's more IoT focused, as in we connecting them from the phone, connecting with different devices as well in, in, in that world. That's correct. That's right. And that's why for GGV, we work with Xiaomi and Beijing's uh, fund Chunwei in mm. China, investing on deals. At the same time, we work with them in the U.S. try to get other companies that are going to be more coming up with more uh, higher-end products 
to work with Xiaomi as well because there's synergy between the two um, two sides. Mm. So I think that we talk a lot about Xiaomi, but I guess the China landscape you are very familiar with. How do you see the bad companies, which is the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, have evolved over the years? I mean, you begin in China when Baidu just IPO, right? And the next couple of years with Tencent and Alibaba evolving, things like um, Tencent evolved, WeChat, Alibaba basically have IPO'd in the New York Stock Exchange. So how do you see these companies have evolved over the years? Right, so 2005, Baidu was 5 billion uh, market cap. Mm. Uh, Alibaba was 5 billion private market valuation. Mm. And Tencent was about uh, 3 to 4 billion market cap. Yeah. Um, and over the next uh, 10 years, uh, Alibaba is the largest now. Um, Tencent is number two, and Baidu is number three in terms of market cap. All three have done fantastic well for their shareholders. I think going forward, it depends how aggressive, systematic they are in terms of executing their, their vision. Baidu is investing a lot on machine learning, mm. uh, natural language learning type of uh, investment. They want to come up with better and more interesting search and provide services that users just not be able to get from traditional search engine. I think that makes sense for Baidu. Tencent is really experimenting how to go global by doing a lot of invest investment in Riot in LA. Obviously, has done very well for them. It's their best overseas investment. But over time, I think I was hoping with, with WeChat, they can be more global. It seems like WeChat is popular in China and selectively some of the Asian countries, but haven't been as big as I hope they would be. I think Alibaba has been the most aggressive. I think Jack, Joe, and the management team are very aggressive and, and very strategic in thinking how to make Alibaba become an ecosystem, not just a transaction platform, not just in China, but also in China as well. I think in the next 10 years, whoever can win on a global basis, because back in 2005, you know, the world had only a billion internet users. 10 years later, it's 3 billion. The next one billion, the fourth billion, will will happen in the next five years. So over the next five years, you have four billion internet users you can potentially serve around the world. That's bigger than just China or bigger than just the U.S. Whoever can come up with a strategy that can capture that market is going to be the largest company in the world. Mm. So of the three, I guess Alibaba is now the largest. Do you see Baidu going out of China? I think Baidu and Tencent both experimenting. Baidu's investment into Uber is interesting. Uh, it makes sense for BAT to initially try to do investments to learn about other markets, other entrepreneurs beyond those in China and figure out what makes sense for them. But over time, I think they have their core services outside of China uh, as well. And it's not easy. That's why I think Xiaomi without Hugo, without Lin Bin being a great president who has worked both in Google and uh, Microsoft in the U.S. and China, without these two and a willing founder like Beijing to do this, without that mix of commitment and DNA to go beyond China, it's not easy to come up with a service that's global. I think Alibaba and Xiaomi, those two in particular, have had stronger ambition to try to make that work. What do you see that the next generation of companies after that? I mean, Xiaomi is definitely one of them. I'm pretty sure about that. Are, are there uh, any companies that will be very interesting to look at? I think uh, beyond those uh, three plus uh, mm. maybe Xiaomi, there are other companies that's potentially uh, interesting. I think Jingdong JD uh, has done the job coming with a B2C commerce in China, separate from what Tmall and Taobao have done. You know, there are a lot of debates and arguments which is better model and so forth. But from a user standpoint, 
having a, a, a choice alternative makes a lot of sense. And then uh, VIP shop, I think, has done a good job of trying to go take flash sale model and go outside of China or also bring other users to a Chinese good and or get uh, Chinese users more products from outside of uh, China as well. I think both JD and VIP shop are interesting transaction engine that's worth tracking for people. On the uh, app side, mobile app side, I think Cheetah Mobile has an amazing job of going overseas. Uh, UC Web, which is a GCP portfolio investment that has been subsequently acquired by uh, by Alibaba, also is interesting. Um, those two are very good at extending their apps beyond just China and making them popular in India and elsewhere. UC Web's browser is number one browser in India, and Cheetah Mobile's Clean Master mobile app is the amongst the top 10, 15 most popular apps in the U.S. You're sourcing companies from China and go global. And we're an investor in DD Taxi. My partner, Jishun, who was the first investor in Baidu, led our investment recently into DD Taxi. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of transportation app that could be a gateway to a lot of things you do because of the high frequency. It's also very interesting. So I think DD uh, will do amazing things, not just in China, but down the road elsewhere as well. Jishun uh, is also an investor in Grab Taxi which is number one uh, transportation app in Singapore, Indonesia, uh, uh, Thailand, and Philippines, and Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be very interesting to see how these on-demand mobile services grow. We're very, very bullish on, uh, on that category as well. Wow. Then how about the challenges for Chinese companies to scale globally? I mean, they, you have already indicated earlier that they have done testing by investing in companies outside to understand them. What do you see are other challenges for Chinese companies to go globally? If I look at Huawei and Xiaomi as an example, I think you need to have a founder who's extremely ambitious, who want to take the effort to figure out how to build a global company because it's inherently not easy and takes a lot of work. You also need to have a, uh, a very trusted core team, someone who is in the core leadership but has international uh, work experience and can make this kind of vision when global possible. And then you need to recruit the best talent from outside of China to join you to realize that. That's why I think in Xiaomi, Beijing being the Hugo, the three play very interesting roles to allow that to be possible. And I look at uh, uh, Cheetah Mobile, the CEO, Fu Shen, I'm an IPO investor in, uh, in Cheetah Mobile. I look at Fu Shen, he is from China and didn't, uh, never really went outside of China until closer to IPO and get ready for Rosho. But he intuitively also understand that for, for him to build a great company, he cannot just be in China, where he was number two in several mobile app categories, but to be number one, he needs global. So start focusing on how to do that and build the team to do that. I think before, when the mobile internet is not as big, and back in the PC internet era, it's much harder to go global. But now with uh, I, uh, Apple App Store, with uh, Google Play, it's much easier to come up with apps that are good in one country with good reviews to have access to other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as the world grow from, you know, one to three billion internet users on mobile, and then now to four billion in the next five years, uh, you will create more and more natural opportunities for Chinese companies to go global. Mm-hmm. I think if I step back and look at the overall scene, China and the U.S. have the most competitive and the most, uh, uh, the richest internet um, sectors. Uh, you can argue Korea and Japan to some extent as well. Chinese and in, in U.S. American teams have had so much experience in the internet space to come up with their own models that make sense. 
that they are more prepared to go abroad into other countries where other countries just haven't had as many different kind of internet companies, especially in the consumer space over the last 10 years. Hmm. And so I think in a lot of countries, you will see Chinese teams or American initially do well, but the local teams will catch up and learn quickly and then adapt well, do well locally. So I think it will be very interesting to see how Chinese companies to cost or to seed to affect local changes in India, Southeast Asia, and Brazil over time. Hmm. Actually, that's very, very interesting insight because what actually mobile has done is actually flatten. It gives the Chinese market the access point to go outside of China rather Correct. than rather than in the PC world where it is still US-centric kind of that's right. domination. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's a very interesting shift. And I don't think Chinese company will dominate in mm. Southeast Asia, India, Brazil, and elsewhere. But I think their entry will foster more innovations by teams in those countries and local native teams to do even more. And that kind of exchange is good for, you know, everyone. And also the, those new emerging, one bi- the next 1 billion, the next 2 billion, they're all going to be talking in mobile as well. That's so right. there is a kind of a cross-pollination of even new models that they can actually experiment without even being there, like the US That's right. companies. That's right. That's right. This is why you asked me why I decided to do venture capital or get into venture capital. Because in internet space, just so many changes going on. A company could be big one day, but tomorrow it's gone. Everybody has to be on their toes, constantly thinking about uh, what are the better, better ways to serve your users. And that just makes life very, very interesting. I think I wake up every day being very thankful, extremely grateful for the opportunity to be born in the mobile internet era, uh, see the rise of China in the internet space. This is more once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yes, I can definitely hear that that enthusiasm and the passion. So I have one kind of final question, set of questions to ask is regarding venture capital from Silicon Valley to China. Are there founder cultural differences? Are there structural differences? But what right. about founder cultural differences and structural cultural differences? I think over the last uh, five years, the rise of Facebook, Twitter, Dropbox, Airbnb, Uber, that the uh, US entrepreneurs, I, th- I think have the best time in uh, ever and anywhere in the in the in, in the in, in the world, mm. yeah. Investment terms uh, are extremely founder friendly in the Bay Area, in particular, with uh, Tiger Global and then uh, DST buying only common shares and then give the, you know voting rights to uh, to entrepreneurs made it very uh, hard uh, for entrepreneurs to pick the right VCs that they want and be able to build a company as they, as they see fit. It's great for founders; give them a lot of power. At the same time, I'm also hoping that there will be healthier exchanges between founders and their VCs. I think VC need to be a lot more body wide, not just give you money. I think our differentiation is that we really spend the time to help a company to think. What Chinese team need to do more of is be more international and come up with a UI that's pleasing to the eyes, excite the users, and that, that needs time to get better at. So I think both the American teams and the China teams can do better and become more uh, comprehensive in their approach to be ready for the global market. But it's very interesting to help both teams and both places try to do what in, to be get better in areas they could use more improvement. Well, I think that there's a lot of exciting things that's going to come. And I'm sure that you're going to be looking at the next two, three billion out there through with your um, investments in the mobile space. So Hans, help my audience. How do they find you? 
Uh, I'm happy to take any emails. I uh, can be reached at hans at ggbc.com, H-A-N-S at ggbc.com, or Ami on WeChat, uh, which is Hans Stone, H-A-N-S-T-U-N-G. I should connect with you on WeChat because uh, I also use WeChat for for my communication with my Chinese friends. But I think you also have a Twitter account too, right? That's right. That's Hans Stone as well. Ah, okay. So they can actually connect with you. Well, yeah. or look at me on LinkedIn. I, I, I've got a lot of uh, inbound interest on um, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I think LinkedIn is also an interesting product. Yes, and and you can also find me at bernardleong.com or bleongcw or follow us at analyzeasia or at analyzeasia.com. So Hans, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard, for having me.